So, um, given it's the last, our last meeting of this year, I was reflecting about, well, what would I like to talk about? What would seem relevant or valuable? And so what I'd like to do is start with a quote that I've used a bit over the year that I feel is a really beautiful quote, and it's a, a personal reflection from the Buddha. And it's a Buddha talking about his life and how he began to start to change, how he started to be impacted by his understanding and his insight that led to his awakening. And it's personal in that he, he talks about what his life was like, what, what was the life like that he ended up being dissatisfied with. And he says, he's talking to the monks and the nuns, and he's saying, bhikkhus, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, the heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them and I did not once come down from that palace. The Buddha had a good time, we could say. Of course, this is before he was the Buddha. And then he goes on to talk about, even though he had this beautiful grounds that had been built for him, these lakes that had been built for him, even though he was protected all the time, even though he could hang out for four months in the rain with all these women, basically, and not even leave the palace. Something wasn't right. Something wasn't satisfying. And he says, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me when an untaught, ordinary person, subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, and they are horrified or humiliated or disgusted, oblivious that oneself is also subject to aging. If I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. And as I noticed this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. The typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And even though I was endowed with such fortune, total refinement, the thought occurred to me, and he goes through the same thing about an untaught ordinary person subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees another who is ill and they react. They see they're horrified or humiliated or disgusted, oblivious that they also are subject to illness. He says, if I, who am subject to illness, not beyond illness, were to be horrified, humiliated and disgusted on seeing another person who is ill, this would not be fitting for me. And as I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. And he continues, he said, even though I'm endowed with such good fortune, only now he takes a look at death. He says, if I were to be humiliated or disgusted or horrified at death, that would not be fitting for me. And as I noticed this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. So these are the three intoxications that dropped away for the Buddha. While he was still a prince, while he had still been living the princely life, he realized he, the intoxication with youth, the intoxication with health, 
the intoxication with life. And I want you to reflect for a minute. Pay attention. How do you hear that? What do you hear him saying when he says these intoxications fell away? Because it's significant what he, the way he's saying it. He's not saying that he didn't enjoy youth or not to appreciate health or not to love life. And often we can hear some, some idea, oh, then life's not good, or we shouldn't like it, or we shouldn't enjoy being healthy. But actually what he's talking about is the intoxication with health and, and um, life and with um, youth. And so the question comes for us, what, is, what does it mean, intoxication? We know conventionally what it means, that intoxication clouds the mind. It deludes the mind and heart. It blurs the vision. When we're intoxicated, we don't see clearly. We don't see the truth of things when we're intoxicated. There's not clarity. There's not precision. There's not understanding. So what is the intoxication of youth or the intoxication of health? How does youth intoxicate us? How does health intoxicate us? How does life intoxicate us? The intoxication that falls away for the Buddha is an intoxication with permanence. You ever remember being young? <laughs> and you can always remember being younger. Maybe I should say it that way. Being younger. But actually, I mean being young. Let's, let's think a little bit about being a, a kid. And you remember how the world of adults seemed so far away? Like that was a whole other world when we were seven, eight, or nine, or ten. It was like adults who lived in their own world. And it seemed like the world of being a, a, a youngster would last forever. And it actually felt like that. Years felt like a long time. Months felt like a long time. Sometimes a day would be a really long time as a kid. And one of the things we see as we get older, and it, and it continues generally as we get older and older, is how fast time goes, that our whole sense of time changes. And so as we're young, there's an intoxication with youth, with permanence, with the sense that we're always going to be young. And it's rather shocking. Anybody who's ever seen their first gray hair, it's like, oh, Whoa, that's gray hair. As if it wouldn't have, of course, one wouldn't have a gray hair, right? But from the perspective of youth, that's for other people. That's for old people. Or the intoxication with health. That's maybe easier to notice because that intoxication falls away the moment we get sick or the moment we fall, or the moment we hurt ourselves. And then it's like, oh, I, I always, I have to say, I find it a little fascinating that moment that health turns to illness. And I'm just talking about a cold. I'm not even talking about anything super dramatic. Just getting a cold. It's like all of a sudden we're, we're fine, and then all of a sudden we're not fine. And that whole sense of, oh, I thought I was kind of, there's somewhere in us we think, oh, we're just going to be fine forever. And of course, the intoxication with life. I can't remember what the, what the figures are, but you know, in terms of beliefs, like believing we're going to die is like fourth on the list, right? Like, you know, and even though we all know we're going to die. All right, anybody not know that? <laughs> I just want to check. 
most of us don't really live our lives as if that's the truth. We live our lives as if we'll go on forever. As if our youth will go on forever, our health will go on forever, or our life will go on forever. And this is the intoxication with permanence, with stasis that we want or we expect or we imagine or we believe that we live in a static reality. And of course, there is no stasis in, there's no, there's nothing static, there's no stasis in all of life, in any of the world, in any place in the universe. There is no stasis. So, there's a second piece to this. So we see what happened for the Buddha. He contemplated youth and the fact that aging happens. He contemplated health and the fact that illness happens. He contemplated life and the fact that death happens. And then it said, as I notice this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. That's a very powerful image. That his attachment to permanence entirely fell away in a moment. It doesn't say he let go of it. That's a very interesting point for us to contemplate, because much of a lot of the Buddha's teaching, and it's a it's a very good teaching, is about letting go, letting go. That when I thought about what this being the last night of the year for us in this form, I thought, oh, what would be the most valuable teaching? Letting go. The, the teachings of mindfulness are teaching on how to let go, to not hold on, not be intoxicated by youth, by health, by life, by our ideas, by our identifications, by our roles, by our beliefs. And it's not because our roles are bad, or even the identifications are bad, or even the beliefs are bad. It's just that they're not permanent. They're not static. They're part of a living process that the Dharma asks us to come into alignment with, come into harmony with the truth of the way things are, the truth of the way reality is, the truth of not just a reality that's outside of us, but a reality that we are, that we are a, a perfect and beautiful expression of the, the truth that there is no permanence. The truth or the reality that everything is in flux, everything is in process, that there's no stasis in the whole universe and that we learn how to come into harmony with what's called ecstasis or ecstasy, the ecstasy of life. And ecstasy is not necessarily, normally we think of ecstasy as oh, a big, you know, fireworks going off. And that's, that's a nice kind of ecstasy that happens. Or, I mean, some people think of ecstasy as something else. But, and that's even else probably a nice kind of ecstasy also. But I'm talking about ordinary ecstasy, everyday ecstasy every moment ecstasy, the ecstasy of now, the fact that this experience, that our life, that our meeting here in this form is not static at all. It's, it's unfolding in a magical and mysterious way that in Buddhism is talked about as emptiness. That it's not solid. That there's nothing solid here. And it sometimes makes people nervous when they hear that at first. But it's not a problem. If it was a problem, we'd already have a problem with it. Because it is the way things are. That there's no stasis. The problem 
The problem is we believe things are static. The problem is we believe there's permanence or we act as if there's permanence. And when we act that way, we suffer. And so all the teachings of the Buddha are teachings about how to come into harmony with this aliveness that's right here. That's simply breathing your breath right now. That's thinking your thoughts right now. That's interested in the talk or bored with the talk right now. That likes the talk or is upset with the talk right now. That's all in flux, alive, unstatic. And so then for us, the movement, the teachings of mindfulness are teachings about how to let things drop away. How to let our ideas and beliefs and imaginings and holdings and fears and uh, reactions and tensions, how to let them drop away. How to not let them, like the Buddha said, as he notices the intoxication entirely dropped away. He didn't even say he let go of it. And this is a point I'm going to play with in a second. But maybe there's a there's another philosophical piece I want to add in here, which is one way of thinking about the path is that we learn something. We learn something by walking the Buddhist path. That each step we take, we learn how to be maybe a little kinder and a little wiser and a little more compassionate and a little more open and a little more uh, patient and a little more relaxed and a little more heartfelt and a little more whatever it is. And that's one of the understandings, that's one of the ways the path is described. That step by step, as we practice, we begin to embody the qualities of awakening. That we learn, we discover, and we live those qualities. There's another way that the path is described, and it's not a path of gaining, but a path of releasing. And so instead of walking forward, the way I think about this is we've already been on a path and now we're walking backwards because we're undoing what we've learned that isn't in a harmony, in alignment with the truth of reality. So we're starting to step back from permanence, step back from grasping, step back from aversion, step back from uh, fear, step back and not step away. I want to be careful here. But the principle is, the principle is in Zen, it said, it said, gaining, gaining is inferior, releasing is superior. Gaining is inferior, releasing is superior. Or as Lao Tzu put it, he said, in the pursuit of learning, every day something is acquired. In the pursuit of the way, in the pursuit of the Dharma, every, every day something is dropped. Every day something is dropped. Something is let go of. And so the question is, how do we drop? How do we drop our intoxication? How do we drop our fear? How do we drop our contractedness? How do we drop our holding on? How do we drop? When I think about letting go, well, let's put it this way. I think about it two ways. If there's something that I want to let go of and I can let go of it easily, I do so. And if, that, if I can do that, that also gives me some information. The information is, I'm not really attached to it. If I can let go easily, okay, I, I want it my way. Oh no, it's okay, Let's, whatever way is fine, I, I'll let go of that. You know, I'm having a difference of opinion with somebody and it's like, okay, let's, we can do it your way. And I let go. If I let go like that, that's easy. No problem. 
I don't, I'm not really attached to my opinion or my view or my idea or something. I may think I'm right, but I'm not attached to it. It's when I can't let go that I know I'm attached to something. When I can't be easy with it or gracious with it or even if I still want to keep my point but there's not a reactivity then I'm not attached but if there's reactivity if there's contraction if there's fear if there's some idea of me and them and this and I have to fight and all this stuff then there's some attachment to something whether it's an idea belief a position an identity a role a feeling And then, I can't let go of it. I could try to let go of it. But actually, I can't let go. Letting go happens. But I don't do it. So how do we let go then? Like the Buddha said, he didn't say he let go. He said, it totally dropped away. So there seem to be two important principles, qualities, capacities that we develop through mindfulness that support letting go happening. And they're awareness and compassion. Awareness and compassion. That we want to, first of all, be aware, be mindful of what's actually happening. When when I'm feeling attached to something, what's going on? And it's not it's not a simply and this is where mindfulness is a poor word. It's not simply observing it. Like when I really I'm angry and I'm pissed and I want it my way and it's that person's an idiot. I mean, what is that? I mean they they might be an idiot, but why am I having such a big reaction? Why am I caught in my anger and my reactivity? So, we spend time being present, learning how to pay attention to our experience as we sit, so we can pay attention when we're attached to something. We can pay attention not from a distance, but by being present right in the middle of the whole affective experience. The thoughts that come, the ideas that come, the feelings in the body. This is a really important part of studying attachment, is how it feels in the body, because attachment always has contraction, tightness, uptightness, right? People say, I was uptight. It's true. So the body becomes a very important barometer for us uh, in, in studying attachment. And then, and then the whole um, affective feeling and the energy of it. It's not just the body. It's, it, there's a whole energy to our sense of being attached to anything. Um, attachment, if we're attached to, you know, I'm attached to my, whatever, computer. You know, I may like my computer. I may love my computer. But when I'm attached to it, I actually believe that something bad will happen if... I don't have my computer next to me. You know, that I'm not okay without my computer. Even when it's off. Right? I need my computer near me. Because my computer is part of my identity. I'm a computer programmer and I'm very hip with computers and I can do all kinds of great things and look at what a, I've got the most new computer, right? It's a very cool computer. And I don't go anywhere without it because I like to be seen with the computer because I think if somebody sees how cool my computer is, they're going to think I'm cool too and then maybe I'll meet somebody and, you know, they might have a nice computer and (laughs) our computers can get together. So we want to begin to pay attention to that whole cathexis The word is cathexis. It's when we imbue, it's a psychological term, it's when we imbue a certain psychological energy into a thing or a person or an identity or a role. 
rather than just live in the in the simplicity of oh the computer it's amazing it's beautiful it's what they do it's it's phenomenal you know until they crash and all that stuff but but and and it's just the computer and, and the computer's even temporary like you know the shell you know how quickly computers live and die these days right they live about four years and you've got to get rid of it because it's obsolete already. It's not permanent. It's just something that's here for, for now and it's useful for now and it even can be beautiful and we can appreciate it. But is that, is that what we want to attach to? Is that what we want to think really makes our life important? It's a tool, a computer, a beautiful tool. It doesn't matter whether it's a computer or a bike or a wrench or whatever, or a car. or The things of this world are to be used, enjoyed, valued. But if we think that's what our value is about or where our happiness is found, then we suffer. And it's why we want to learn to let go of our attachment. So we want to use our awareness to be aware of what attachment is like. We want to study it by learning how to be present in the middle of it. And so, and to do that, we have to be compassionate. We have to be kind. We actually can't study. We can't get totally present with ourselves, with our experience, if we're not kind to ourselves because it's too painful otherwise. The, the human suffering, and I mean for everybody in this room, and we all have different levels and kinds of suffering, but it's actually too painful to really be, we, you can't really be mindful without compassion, without kindness, without a care and a, a graciousness towards this precious human birth that we find ourselves in and that is the means and the modality and the vehicle for awakening. And so, this poem from Rumi, he said, God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you to enter my arms. Pay homage to everything that has helped you to enter my arms. And Rumi answers, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not one act, I would not bow to. If God said, Rumi, pay attention to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not one act, I would not bow to. <coughs> that the life we've been given, we learn to appreciate as the vehicle, as the means for awakening, for understanding. And so it's not out of any kind of harshness or judgment or denigration of our life that we examine it, but actually out of a tremendous appreciation for the preciousness of the temporality. You know, this group's been going 15 years now. It'll be 15 years in the new year. And it's, it's not static. We have no idea how long this group will go or what'll happen. And it's easy to kind of think, oh, this will last forever. And maybe it will, but even if the group lasts forever, we won't, right? <laughs> You know, we have such a different group now from when we started 15 years ago in somebody's living room on Lyon Street. And we're all different people. Well, most of you weren't there, so, but the few of us who were there, we're different people. It's a different world. It's all changed. And it's precious in that way. Life is really precious. It's really beautiful. It's really amazing that we're here at all. And so the two qualities we develop as we learn to sit just with our breath, just that, with our bodies, with the, what happens on a Sunday night in the sitting, what we're developing is the capacity to pay attention to the human experience 
and do it with kindness, do it with care. Letting go of our judgments, letting go of all the harshness we have, all the cynicism we have. Now, we don't let go of it by pushing any of that away. This is what's really interesting about mindfulness. You don't get rid of your cynicism by denying it. You can't. The key to true mindfulness and true understanding is authenticity. Is actually to be right where you are. Like your heart's not open, that's exactly the right place to be. You hate everything? Pay attention to that. That's the doorway for you. What's true on the most relative level, you know, I'm in a cranky mood, if that's what's true, that is the doorway to nirvana. <laughs> you know, you don't hear that so often, so let me say it again. <laughs> Your crankiness is the doorway to nirvana. Absolutely true. Because we don't want to push anything away because that pushing away is a form of attachment. Remember, in Buddhism, attachment has two flavors, grasping and aversion. Grasping and aversion are both attachment. So to push away is like, you know, is like getting caught in the briar patch. It's sticky, it's, you, you can't, it's like getting caught in, in you know, something and you, you just, you're, you're attached just by that movement of mind to try to get rid of. It's the same as trying to hold on to. That what we're trying to do is see, oh, we don't have to get rid of anything and we don't have to grasp onto anything. That reality, first of all, is ungraspable. We can't hold on to anything. And what's here, we can't actually push away. And so we want to come into harmony with that truth and find the freedom that, get, that gives us to come into harmony with, as it's said in Buddhism, the way things are. So one of the keys then is this kindness or compassion. And it means being willing to sit with what's true. With no, not even the agenda that it let go. Or more precisely, that's the biggest agenda but, but the skillful means to realize that agenda is to let go of that agenda. Does that make sense? Should I say that again? Okay. So the, the, there is a goal. We could say letting go is the goal or being free is the goal. But in service of letting go, we have to let go of trying to let go or even at some point wanting to let go. Because it's only through sitting in, embracing our experience, that our experience will let go of us. That instead of us doing the letting go, the letting go will happen. And here I'll read you a couple things. This is from a, 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 a woman from India, a tantric teacher. She said, people come and say, I've had trouble letting go. She said, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go, but how do you let go if you don't hold on to things? How do you let go if you don't hold on to things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart? The first thing, the first movement of letting go, the first thing is having the experience of touch, of contact, of profound contact with things, with the universe, without mental commotion. Now what that means is, for we would use a little slightly different language, it means being mindful of something, let, getting enough composure, collectedness, so we can sit with being uncomposed and uncollected. That there's enough composure so we can sit with anger. So there's enough composure so we can be present with our fear. So there's enough collectedness so we can be <coughs> present with our lust, our desire, our wanting, whatever it is, without, with a totally open heart, totally compassionately. And touch it means that the mindfulness is not from a distance, but it's right in the middle of the experience. That we feel it fully, we experience it fully. We don't deny it on any level, but we don't act on it either. So she says, 
Everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. And of course, we are the universe. We are a microcosm of the whole universe. So everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, that can bring on mental turmoil. Many beginning yogis, practitioners, make this mistake. They let go before taking hold and the heart never opens. They enter into a sterile void and remain imprisoned. And what she's describing in psychological terms is a kind of schizoid letting go, that we do it mentally. We know it's a good idea to let go, so we say, okay, I'm going to let go. And one of my colleagues was talking about how she was on a retreat a few months ago, and she kept having this, uh, she was having a really hard time. And the teacher said, well, it's just a mind state, it's just a mind state, let it go, it's just a mind state, let it go. And it may be true, it's just a mind state, but she couldn't let it go. And to say it's just a mind state is to, is to distance from it rather than move into it and, and, and study it and understand it and have it let go, have it drop away like the Buddha's intoxication dropped away when he really understood it. So she says, when you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. That when we actually surrender to our experience, letting go happens. And so letting go is a subset of surrender, we could say. So this kindness, this care, can imbue, and I hope, I hope it will for each of you, it'll begin to permeate your practice, this kindness. And then we can hear how letting go happens naturally. William Blake, he says, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He who binds himself to joy. So even the good things of life, we don't want to attach to. Because he who binds himself to joy, she who binds himself to joy, does the winged life destroy. Because it's alive and it's not static. And when we try to make it static, we lose the joy, we lose the beauty, we lose the goodness, we lose what we seek. But, but she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. It's a beautiful phrase. Eternity's sunrise. Eternal sunrise. Not by holding on, but by letting go. By letting things be, maybe even more accurate way to say it. There's another piece that I thought about in relation with what we're talking about. And it's the understanding of renunciation. And renunciation is not a favorite word in our culture. People are not interested in being renunciates or renouncing things. And I, I like the term renunciation. I have to keep making up my own uh, uh, definitions of it. <laughs> to, to announce again, renunciation. To Remember, re often means again or come back or a second time. To re-announce. Um, um, and of course, renunciation means to let go of or to see, and this is Suzuki Roshi's definition, to see that there's nothing we can hold on to. To renounce the world doesn't mean to push it away or to deny oneself. It means to see that there's nothing that we can hold on to in the whole world. And there's a second understanding of renunciation that I think is helpful, which is letting go of holding back. 
letting go of holding back. And this is really in alignment with the touching the world that the Indian teacher Devi talked about. This is from Pema Chodron. She said, renunciation does not have to be regarded as a negative. I was taught that it has to do with letting go of holding back. When one, what one is renouncing is closing down. What one is renouncing is shutting off from life. You could say that renunciation is the same thing as opening to the teachings of the present moment. To opening what's here and renouncing the past, renouncing the future, renouncing our fantasies, renouncing our beliefs, renouncing our plans, renouncing our imagining, even for a moment. And to open, to live, to be here fully, fully in our body, feeling our body, fully with our emotions and our minds and our experience as it is. Unveiled by our mental commotion. She said, renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia for wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world is insane. She's, she can be quite direct, Pema Chodron, that way. Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is and how vast our potential for experiencing life is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. So part of letting go, part of the art of realizing the Dharma is realizing the value of renouncing, of not of, of examining what's the truth, what do we value, and where do we want to put our energies and our time? How do we want to serve the Dharma? And part of that serving means practicing the Dharma, and part of that serving means how do we want to live our lives, given the uh, um, our sobriety about youth, illness, and death. And sobriety is another term that often gets a bad rap, and it's really a lovely quality of mind. True sobriety is really, it's, got, it's like a mountain. It has that kind of power, real sobriety. We tend to think of it as being uptight in some way. Well, let's see, I don't have this talk quite outlined right yet. Okay, so then the last piece. The last piece is what happens when we let go? What happens when things drop away? What happens when we're not holding on anymore? Or what happens when things start not holding on to us? What gets revealed is the fruit of the Dharma, the depth of the Dharma, the blessings of the Dharma, the insight of the Buddha, the realization of the awakened ones. What gets revealed is something that's innate to us. And so this again is different than, oh, we're walking the path and then we get something. Now this is, we've been letting go, letting go, letting go, letting things drop, drop, drop. And then we start to see what's here. We start to see what's innate here. What, not, the, not the conditioning that we've been influenced by, not the history that's influenced us, not the ideas or beliefs or imaginings, but what's actually here. What's actually here in the present moment. What is our nature? And so Dogen, when he talks about the whole teaching of the Buddha, he puts it very simply. To study the Buddha way is to study the self, which we do when we're mindful. To study the self is to forget the self, meaning that when we study the self, when we learn to sit right in the middle of our experience and it starts to self-liberate, it starts to fall away, then we start forgetting our whole sense of self-centeredness, that attachment to some idea of I, me, and mine, starts to lose its cathexis. It loses its preeminence. 
and something else starts to realize itself. Something starts to show itself here. That's not exactly, it's not that we disappear, but our identification with an identity based on history, based on what our parents taught us or who we're supposed to be in society, that's not the depth of who we are. That's a conventional idea and it's fine, but that's not our, the depth of our nature. And so he says to study the Buddha way is to uh, study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened with all things. To be awakened with all things. Sometimes it's also uh, translated as to be intimate with all things. And how do we get intimate with all things? When there's no veil, when there's no, when there's no when we're not looking through lens of our history or our beliefs or ideas, and there's something quite radiant here. Luminous is the term the Buddha used. He said, luminous is his heart and mind. Luminous. And it's colored by the attachments that visit it. But for the true practitioner who has let go of the attachments, the heart and mind, the luminosity shines. It's why we use the term enlightenment. It's, there's a radiance, there's a light, there's a brilliancy, there's a beauty. That is the nature of who and what each of us is. And this, this innate goodness begins to show itself. And you don't have to wait till total enlightenment. It can happen in a moment of letting go, in a moment of seeing what selfless behavior looks like. Not as an idea, but when it actually just happens. When we, we know when our hearts are open, when our intention is just to help or just to do good or just to be present, not even have to do anything, to start to see what that luminosity is like. And it's, it's a funny territory because in the Buddhist teaching, there's not a lot of description of the luminosity. There's a little bit. Lumin luminous is one of the words. Also, the Buddha talks about the, the heart that's awakened, that it's full of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. Or the mind that's awakened, that it's, that it's, it's collected and composed, it's steady. And the, the heart and mind, are, there's a presence and a present-centeredness and a knowing, and a clarity, and some energy, and joy, and um, not just joy, rapture is the word that's there in the Buddhist teaching. And there's mindfulness, and there's curiosity, and investigation. One of the Zen texts one of the great Zen books that I've never read. It's called Tracing Back the Radiance. And I, I love the title, Tracing Back the Radiance. And all I ever read was the little thing, you know, right inside the cover. But I, I thought I got the whole transmission, so I didn't read the book. <laughs> Could be a little hubris on my part. But, but I'll read to you what it said, because I've got it. It said, in this tradition, the optimal regime of training starts with an initial uh, experience of awakening to the mind's inherent radiance. So just a glimpse, a moment, and just a moment of seeing our goodness, or seeing the, the uh, boundless nature of our hearts, that capacity, even for a moment. Okay. Sudden awakening to the mind or the heart's inherent radiance and enlightenment followed by gradual cultivation of that awakening so that one can learn to act as well as be enlightened. The principal means uh, that is proposed for catalyzing the initial awakening is through tracing the radiance emanating from the luminous core of the mind back to its source and restoring the mind to its natural enlightened state that it's already here and we simply want to develop our capacities, our potential for realizing the truth 
of what we are, the truth of the Dharma that sits here in each seat, in each seat here, not one seat, not one being left out, the truth of this radiance. And I'll end by reading you about the woman. Some of you remember I read a story about a woman who was in a horrible, horrible, bad accident in Laos. And I could, I won't go through the whole thing, but she was on her way to a meditation retreat and she had, you know, any number of bones broken, back, pelvis, tailbone, ribs snapped, spleen sliced in half, heart, stomach, and intestines ripped out of place and pushed into my shoulder, lungs collapsed, etc., etc. And she says, as a practicing Buddhist, I'd been headed to a meditation retreat and there I lay crushed and bleeding at the side of the road. Struggling to draw in air, I imagined each breath to be my last, breathing in, breathing out, consciously willing myself not to die. I concentrated on the life force fighting its way into my lungs. Along with the breath, pain became my anchor. Pain became my anchor. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I sat in meditation, fixated on the sensation of my leg falling asleep. That discomfort could hardly compare to the torment of my injuries, but I discovered that meditating could still help me focus and remain alert, and I'm convinced it saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slow my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I've never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. And then she goes on to say what happened after that. A number of hours passed, six hours more passed, no one to help arrived, and I opened my eyes and I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. And that's when I became convinced I was going to die. And as I closed my eyes and surrendered, as I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me, a bone-deep peace I could have never imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. This is our potential for awakening. Maybe we don't have to get in such a bad accident, although Maybe that's what's needed at times. Who knows? As she says, there was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. Let's sit for a minute before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.